0: Get it in your mind. You are a sinner and you have committed sins and you continually commit sins and so do I. There is only one exception, Jesus Christ the righteous.
1: Welcome to the Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. When you were a child, were you quick to confess when you did something wrong? Were you open and honest about it? Or perhaps you doubled down and lied about the matter? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of a series titled The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. We're looking at three tests of genuine Christian faith. The moral, obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. The social, love for God and love for His people. And doctrinal, having a true understanding and knowledge of who Christ is and His Gospel. Today, you'll discover that the believer's new relationship to sin is also shown by the admission of his or her actual sins. Tom will help you examine the life of prayer, Do you regularly confess and admit your sin, or do you procrastinate, refuse, and perhaps even deny any guilt? Keep those questions in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Well, I do encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 John as we continue our study of this wonderful letter. This week I was thinking about... uh, English idiom. You know, our language is filled with these word pictures, and many times we don't even know where they came from. One of those word pictures is the expression, caught red-handed. You understand that expression essentially means that someone is caught in the middle of a crime or so soon after the crime that the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. That expression, caught red-handed, was actually used first back in the 1400s in Scotland. And it literally describes somebody whose hands were red either with the blood of the person they had killed in committing murder or with the blood of an animal that they'd killed in poaching land that was not their own. They were literally caught red-handed. As I thought about that expression, it occurred to me how funny it is that we often use that expression that someone was caught red-handed at the very time that the person who was caught red-handed is denying that they're guilty, denying of what they've done. I mean, this tendency starts with children. Maybe you can remember your own childhood in this way, and if you have children, you certainly can remember how often you have caught your children red-handed. And then you say, okay, what just happened here? To which our slightly brain-damaged children because of the fall say, What? I don't know. I don't know. That is a less than subtle way of denying any wrongdoing. Sadly, the human tendency to deny wrongdoing never goes away until Christ changes the heart then and only then do we stop denying and begin admitting and taking personal responsibility. And that's John's message in the text that we come to this morning. When we are caught red-handed, we instead of denying, instead of saying, I don't know, we say, it's me, I'm the one. John wrote, you remember, to give us assurance in this book that we are truly Christians. So this, this letter is, is really positive Yes, there are some hard confrontations here, but it's written to those he loved, those who were in the church, those who were truly believers, and he wants to encourage us, to give us assurance that we're truly Christians. And so in this letter, he presents three tests of eternal life. There's a moral test, obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. There's a social test, love for God and His people, and there is a doctrinal test, faith in Christ and His Gospel. So the tests are obedience, love, and faith. Now after the prologue and the first four verses of this letter, the rest of the letter presents those three tests again and again. Specifically, those three tests in three cycles or movements. And each of the three tests shows up in each of those three cycles or movements. We're studying the first cycle or the first movement that runs from chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter two, verse 27. Now in this first cycle or this first movement, the very first test we come to as to whether we have eternal life is the moral test, our obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. And every time he comes back to one of these tests, he does so with a a unique nuance. And here the first time he deals with this test of obedience, he focuses this test specifically on our new relationship to sin. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter 1 beginning in verse 5 and this first test runs down to chapter 2 verse 6. You follow along. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Here as we encounter this first test, John essentially tells us this. You can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you are a true Christian, because you now have a new relationship to sin. Now, this test is based, as I've noted, on two fundamental biblical truths. We've looked at both of them. Let me just remind you. First of all, the first truth is God's essential nature of holiness. That's found in verse 5. Notice he says, the message that we heard, we've announced, is that God is light. He is perfectly holy and In him there is no darkness at all. He is totally without sin of any kind. Now because that is God's nature, his essential nature is holiness, you can't know God, you can't be in the fellowship with God, have a relationship with God, and continue to have the same relationship with sin that you did before you claimed to have become a Christian. That's his point. That introduces us then to the second fundamental biblical truth. Because of God's essential nature of holiness, the believer's new relationship to sin is clear and obvious. This begins in chapter 1, verse 6, and runs down through chapter 2, verse 6. So in the rest of this section that we just read together, John shows how our relationship to sin reveals whether we are genuine Christians or whether we're false Christians. Now let me just define that again, in case you haven't been here. By false Christian, I mean somebody who is attached to Christianity, attached to the Christian church, attends a church like this one, and says, yes, I'm a Christian, but isn't really a Christian, has never truly been changed, doesn't truly know the Lord. How can we distinguish in our own hearts whether we're the real thing or whether we're something that's a lie? Well, it comes down to our relationship to sin. The believer's new relationship to sin, we've noticed, is first shown by the pattern of his life in verses 6 and 7. The pattern of his life. In verse 6, a false Christian habitually lives in sin. To use John's words, he walks in the darkness. In verse 7, we learn that a true Christian habitually lives in holiness. He walks in the light. doesn't mean true believers don't sin. It means the, the basic shape and tenor of their lives is in the light. It's habitual holiness. It's habitual obedience. Now, last time, we saw that the believer's new relationship to sin is shown, secondly, by the admission of inherent sinfulness. verse 8, we learn that a false Christian denies his inherent sinfulness. He denies that he was totally depraved before he was born again, and he denies his sinful flesh now, after conversion. On the other hand, verse 9, a true Christian admits he's a sinner And confesses his sins now today we learn thirdly that the believers new relationship with sin is shown by the admission of his actual sins by the admission of his actual sins we see this in the last verse of chapter 1 and the first two verses of chapter 2 true believers and false believers can be identified they can be distinguished by how they respond to their sins. Let's look, first of all, as John does here, at the false Christian. In verse 10, we learn this. A false Christian denies or downplays his sins. A false Christian denies or downplays his sins. Notice his false claims in verse 10. This is the false claim that a false Christian makes. If we say that we have not sinned. Now, the tense of the Greek verb here implies that this person is making an audacious claim. He's claiming that at no point in the past and continuing up until the present has he ever sinned. Now, just to make it clear the distinction, back in verse 8. The person there claims to not have any inherent sinfulness. In verse 10, you have instead a blatant denial of any sinful actions. Now, the first question that should pop into your mind if you're a thinking person at all is how? How could anybody in their right mind say, Yep, that's me, haven't sinned? How does that happen? Well, obviously everyone sins. You know that, and I know that. So how does anyone come to this position? Well, let's first of all start with the first century and the position John's addressing then. The false teachers that were had been a part of the churches that he was ministering to and had left, chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. The false teachers and their followers believed in a a sort of Greek dualism. They believed that because their bodies were matter, consisting of matter, they were therefore evil. And what that meant is their bodies were irredeemable, and they had nothing to do with their spirits, the immaterial part of them which was good. And so, whatever they did with their bodies wasn't truly sin. It wasn't morally culpable. It didn't affect their relationship to God. That's pre-Gnosticism, and that's what John was dealing with. Now, I doubt there are any pre here this morning. I doubt, I don't think I've ever met one who would make that specific claim. But that's only one way that people deny their sins. Let me give you several other common ways that people today deny their sins. I'll give you a little list. Number one, some people today deny their sins by denying God's existence and therefore the reality of a moral standard. There are a lot of atheists who say, you know, there is no God, and therefore there's no standard. There, there is no standard of right and wrong. So what do we do to decide that standard? Well, we redefine sin, and we say, well, it's only wrong if it hurts somebody else. So what I do doesn't hurt anybody else, so it's not wrong. It's not morally culpable. Or others will say, no, it's not just that. It's, let's take a vote. And whatever the majority decides is wrong, we'll all agree together is wrong, and we'll hold everybody to that standard. And if we all agree together it's not wrong, then it's not wrong. Some even go so far, a small minority, go so far as to even deny that any behaviors are moral or immoral. That doesn't work real well in the real world because very few people want to say that what Hitler did wasn't immoral. But there are some. A second common way that people today deny their sins is they reclassify sinful behavior as a physiological problem, as a physical problem that has solely to do with the body. For example, drunkenness or sexual sin is reclassified as solely a physical addiction. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a physical element to sin. Obviously, we're two-part beings and and they bleed into each other significantly. But I'm talking about the person who essentially escapes all culpability for sin by saying, no, 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 that's not me. That's my body. That's That's a physiological problem that I have. A third way that people deny sin today is to reclassify sinful behavior as a psychological problem or as a mental illness and to Put all the fault on sinful behavior on some sort of uh, a problem with the synapses in the brain. Number four, to shift the blame and guilt for your sin to other people, your environment, or your circumstances. There are some people who don't deny the fact of sin. They just deny that it's a fact for them. I only do this because of what this person has done to me or what I have encountered or my circumstances or because of some other circumstance in my environment. Number five, another way people deny their sin is to exchange newly defined cultural sins for biblical sins. This is, this is rampant in our age. Let me give you an example. Two new sins that have been defined and preached from the housetop in our era is failing to recycle and failing to accept those who are transgender. Now here's how it works, for those who embrace those as the new sins, they can, as long as they keep those new culturally defined sins, they can feel like they're moral, even if their life is filled with biblical sins. It's a bait and switch. A sixth way that people deny their sins is to affirm as morally good what the Bible calls sin. This is the end of Romans 1 where they not only knew that what they did was wrong, but they said it was good. They approved of it and approved of those who did it. This is, today in our culture, turning homosexuality into a moral good, turning pride into a moral good, turning lust into something that's normal and natural and should be celebrated. A seventh way that people deny sin is to downplay or minimize sin by renaming it and justifying it. Drunkenness becomes alcoholism, adultery becomes having an affair, stealing becomes taking some of the perks that I have earned by all my hard work, selfishness becomes standing up for my rights, pride becomes, I deserve this. You see, these people don't deny any wrongdoing, but they downplay the sins that are there and they redefine them as weaknesses or struggles or even as good But what they will not say is that these things are acts of rebellion against their rightful king, acts that deserve his eternal wrath. Often the person who makes the claim in verse 10 lives an outwardly good looking life. Often he or she is religious, outwardly moral. They just don't think they need saving or forgiving. They're happy to attach themselves to Jesus and to the church because Jesus is their moral hero. He's like the perfect moralist. And so they tend to think of Jesus not as a savior to deliver them from their sins, but as an example or pattern to follow. They're like the religious leaders of Jesus' time. Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus wasn't saying there are some people who are spiritually well and they don't need my help. No, he's saying I didn't come to help people who are terminally ill, but are convinced that they're okay. I only came to help those who acknowledge their desperate condition. And then he says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. So the false Christian claims that he's not sinned. He denies sin in one of those ways I just gave you. But notice verse 10, his true condition. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar If we respond to sin by claiming that we're not sinners, that we don't need a Savior, then we make God out to be a liar. Now, if you think you're a moral person who really doesn't need God's help and forgiveness, doesn't need to be saved, then let me just have you listen to the clear testimony of Scripture. Let me start by pulling out a few passages that talk about all of us, without exception, are sinners. Here's just a few. First Kings 8, 46, there is no man who does not sin. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say I've cleansed my heart? I am pure from sin. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us comprehensively like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. No exceptions. Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And then, of course, there's Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. Listen to the nuns and not even ones. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then there's Romans three twenty three. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Scripture clearly teaches that all people commit sins, but Scripture also teaches that all believers sin. Listen to Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Lord, if you kept track of sins and you treated me like those sins deserve, who could stand before you? The answer is no one. We'd all be swept away. Psalm 143, 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Romans 7, verses 18 and 19. This is the Apostle Paul. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So all people... All believers commit sins, and there are hundreds of other verses that teach exactly the same thing. Get it in your mind. You are a sinner, and you have committed sins, and you continually commit sins, and so do I. There is only one exception. He's found in verse 2, Jesus, or verse 1 rather, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only one. So to deny that you've sinned, either denying it outright, redefining sins or downplaying sins is to deny those passages, and therefore, it is to call God a liar. By the way, notice, this isn't simply saying that God was wrong about this, that God lied about this one thing, but it's to say that in His character, God is a liar. Why? Because God has said so much about human sinfulness. That's the whole point of the gospel, It's essentially making God out to be the devil because John 8, 44 says, the devil is the father of liars and lies. When someone denies or downplays his sin, he is calling God a liar. He's also noticed showing that he's not a Christian. Verse 10 goes on to say, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If you deny or downplay your sin, you make it patently clear that His Word, His Word collectively, and probably here especially the gospel, isn't in you.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 5 of his series, The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Tom will have Part 6 for you next time. Do join us then. Well, Tom, it can be difficult to confess sin, can't it? Especially if that sin has been ongoing.
0: You know, sadly, Bill, it can be difficult and is difficult for us often. We can very much be like David, who, rather than confessing his sin, hid his sin, covered it, stayed away from God. But confession of our sin is absolutely necessary for us who are believers to obediently follow Jesus Christ. And so regardless of how hard it is, regardless of how vulnerable you may feel in it, I urge you today to do what we're commanded here to do, and that is to confess your sin and seek the forgiveness of God. And then follow that with the same request that our Lord taught us to pray, and that is having confessed the sin, pray, Lord, don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Make me holy like Jesus Christ is. I urge you today, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, to run to Christ and plead for His forgiveness. He will receive you.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org.